when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts. This is part seven. Doubts caused by pressing the limits of understanding. Doubts caused by pressing the limits of understanding. By the way, tonight, tonight and next Sunday night, we will wrap up the series uh, Demons, the Devil, Deliverance, and the People of God. And tonight and next Sunday night, what I want to do is look at the questions people ask. Um, Pastor Don, I was at a meeting and I saw somebody praying for someone and, and there were voices and, and something came out of somebody and I, I saw it happening and you're saying Christians can't be demon-possessed. Or, Pastor Don, I was at a meeting and I'd been bound by some kind of habit and they prayed for me and I was delivered and my life's been totally changed since then. How do you explain that? So those are the kind of things I want to look at starting tonight and then next Sunday night and there'll be study notes for... For everyone as well. Doubts caused by pressing the limits of understanding. Uh, last week, if you've been coming week after week after week, we established the central truth that, that emotions can cause doubts that can actually immobilize sound understanding of theological truth. Even a very carefully reasoned, comprehended faith can be crippled by doubts that stem from emotions that kind of run wild in certain directions. And I use that illustration. Some of you will remember talking about my friend and his fear of flying, even in the face of overwhelming statistical evidence that prove its safety. Statistics, fact, are frequently outgunned by uh, strong emotions like fear, panic. And so we wrapped up that teaching last Sunday morning focusing on the need for the mind, the mind to regulate the emotions if the Christian faith was to have the solid foundation that the Bible intends. And the Holy Spirit will help with that ongoing discipline. That's why one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. Galatians 5, 22, 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And then, underline, self-control. Take note that one of the fruits of the Spirit is strangely called self-control. Control, which means that the self is still somehow involved in the process. It's not spirit control. It's self-control. So we, we cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in this. So that principle of a, a spiritual mind guiding and sometimes overruling emotions, it needs protection for sure and explaining And that's why this week I want to look at doubts caused by, by pressing the limits of understanding. That, I know that doesn't mean much to you right now. I want to explain what I mean by that term in just a minute. If, if last week's teaching focused on the importance of reason guiding the emotions, 
This week's teaching focuses on the limitations of reason all alone, all by itself, unaccompanied by faith. Do you have a peephole in your front door, one of those things you look through, so you can kind of see who's ringing the doorbell? I had an experience once. We had not lived here very long. It wasn't in this house. A number of guys who had actually helped me move, they came and they rang the doorbell. Rini wasn't home. And so I looked through the peephole and there's one person whom I recognized standing there. I opened up the door and there were about four of them just outside range of the peephole. I was just in, you know, house clothes and as soon as I opened the door, they grabbed me, they yanked me out of the house and threw me in a snowbank. Welcome to Cedarview Community Church, Pastor Don. Now, none of us argues against the value of that little peephole in the door. It can be used legitimately. Causes of fear and concern, who might be knocking, who might be ringing... But it's still the case that if you just use the peephole, there could be times when you can arise at false conclusions about who's at your front door. The peephole is important, it's necessary, but in certain situations it can be inadequate all by itself. Had I gone around and looked out the window, I could have spared myself untold agony. Now this applies to the the role, the place of reason in the life of faith. It's absolutely essential. I'm not undoing what I said last Sunday morning. It's central and it's core to a strong Christian faith. But by itself, it will will never be able to understand absolutely everything that comes to the door of your life. Reason has its limits. And if you don't understand that, You're going to conclude that something isn't true or you might paint a false picture of God because something happens that your reason can't quite process and can't quite figure out. There is mystery. There is confusion at times. For now, there are questions we can't always answer. The Apostle Paul says we see through a glass darkly. If you think you're going to think your way through on every single question of life, you won't. That doesn't mean the faith is untrue it means there are limits to what you can presently understand. And here's all of how all this relates to our study about doubt. If we don't recognize at times the limits of our own mental processes, if we're just too impatient to accept and live with some unresolved questions then what's going to happen is we will force explanations for our circumstances and questions that just aren't true. We'll come to our own conclusions about God, why he is allowing this to happen to us, why suffering and pain come to godly people while sinners seem to prosper, why we aren't healed every time we pray in faith, why godly parents can have wayward sons and daughters, and a host of issues that your reasoning is never going to be able to completely satisfy. If you let your reason run out of bounds, like your emotions. 
If you let your reason run out of bounds, if you must have an explanation for everything, even when the explanation isn't given, then what will happen is you'll end up passing judgment on God with your own limited thoughts. Or you'll create a less than worthy God just to satisfy your impatient inquisitiveness. And the God you create won't satisfy your heart. Your faith will start to wane. You will always end up doubting a God who is small enough to fit totally in your head. Let me try to give some practical steps to take when you can't answer the question, why God? Point number one. You never know the value of something until you know its limits. Let me give you just a basic example of this kind of thing. We talk about teaching our children the value of money. I was thinking about the different, I'm not saying better, the contrasting ways in which generations were raised by their parents. If I had ever gone to my father and asked him the meaning of life, he would have given me a New Testament and the job applications in the newspaper and said, there, you got it. We talk about teaching the value of money. And by that we mean that they need to know that somewhere along the way it has to be earned. That it doesn't just grow on trees. We also mean that it shouldn't be wasted on trivialities. We want them to know that there are some things that money can't buy as well. We're not always good at teaching that. So all of those truths are important. We will enjoy and make better use of money over the long haul when we know the value of money. It's when something is used properly, within its proper boundaries, that it functions best in this world. In other words, something has to be used properly in order to appreciate its usefulness. What it can do, what it can't do. And and just like that peephole in the opening illustration... It's a valuable tool for seeing the face of a stranger standing at the door, but you don't look through it if you just want to say goodbye to your spouse. That's not the way to do it. That's not what it's designed for. Here's here's the main point, all right? If it doesn't seem clear, if I muddle around, here's the main point. This morning, there are all sorts of Christian people who grow frustrated, confused, and impatient with God simply because they're trying to solve a problem with reason that can only be solved with trust. Okay, that's what I want to say. There are all sorts of people who are frustrated, confused, fearful, even impatient with God because they're trying to solve a problem with reason 
that can only be solved with trust. That doesn't mean reason is bad. It's just not designed for that. This trust, though, it's not blind. I said things that can't be solved with reason that can only be solved with trust. And that might make you think, Pastor Don means you, you turn off your head and just trust. That's not what I mean. This trust isn't a blind trust. It's reasonable. And I need to explain that with point number two. There are times when we must suspend judgment in our walk with God. And by that, I don't mean suspend thought. That's not the same thing. I don't mean we suspend thought in our walk with God, but we are to suspend judgment. And the distinction is very important in the battle with doubt. Here's why. Well, we live in a fallen world, and because we are finite human creatures, it is simply an honest statement of fact that we are not always able to know what God is doing in every situation of our lives or why he is doing it the way he is. Some things are opaque to us right now. We, we see through a glass darkly. We just see through the peephole. And so, there are going to be times when I simply can't see the whole picture. I don't have all the facts. I have some and I need to understand them, think about them. But I don't have all the facts. I, I don't know the end from the beginning. Only God knows that. And when I don't have all the facts, I need to suspend judgment on that situation. It takes time to learn never to judge God by isolated events. But, and this is the important point, just because I must suspend judgment, I don't suspend thought. While I may not know what God is doing in my circumstances right now, and I may not know why he is doing it the way he is doing it, I still know and must think about the fact that he is trustworthy in whatever he does. So I don't put my mind on the shelf, but I need to channel it in the right direction. Suspending judgment, not suspending thought. There are verses of scripture that will come to mind that will help me to trust God when I don't understand what he's doing. There's limits to my reason. I don't pass judgment on God. And the reason I don't is I think about the right things about God. Did I make that clear? That's where I focus the powers of my mind. It's not anti-reason. It's focused reason. In the face of mystery, remember what you can know. Remember what you do know. In other words, don't overstate your doubts. Don't give them more life than they already have. God, I don't understand you at all. That's a bad statement. It's untrue. It's emotionally driven. And it simply pours gasoline on the fire of your doubt. Better to say, God, in this situation, I don't understand what you're doing right now. There's nothing wrong with that. God can handle that. 
Nobody understands God in every situation, but then continue. But I, but I still know that your word says all things work together for good to those who love God. See, I'm not suspending thought. I'm suspending passing judgment. I'm recognizing the limits of my reasoning. And I'm exercising my mind in a direction that's fruitful. God, I don't understand you at all, isn't true. God, I still know you're working all things together for good, even though I don't understand what you're doing with my life right at this minute. Well, Pastor Don, you're splitting hairs. What's the difference? There's a huge difference. And it leads to my next point, point number three. We always have sufficient reasons for continued trust, even when we don't know what God is doing right now. That's the alternative to allowing your your impatient thoughts build an inaccurate picture of God and reaching an unjust verdict about God when you can't see what he's doing. In other words, when you don't know the path God is taking us down right now, we still know the God who is with us on the path. So when we don't know why God is doing what he is doing, and that frequently happens, we do know the God who knows what he is doing even when we don't. And it's this failure to remember that distinction that is at the root of many times of doubt and confusion and anger and impatience in our lives. You can see it in the life of the psalmist in Psalm 73. I'm going to look at that with you a little bit. The psalmist has an issue. The issue is, as he looks at his life in this slice of time, and he looks at the ungodly around him, God seems to be better to the unjust than he is to the just. And that creates all sorts of theological problems for people who believe in an absolutely good and just God. And so the psalmist pours out his complaint. Look at it. Psalm 73, 8 to 14. What we're going to see in this psalm is two pictures. One, you're going to see a picture of the psalmist when when he allows... When he allows his thoughts to run into realms that they can't solve, we're going to see that first, and the impatience that that brings, okay? He doesn't understand the limits of his present understanding, and it's making him impatient. Then, he's going to wake up to this, and what the psalmist is going to do is he's going to focus his mind on what he can know and understand about God, and it's going to help with his anger and his confusion. Okay, that's the map. That's where we're going here. So first, the negative side. Psalm 73, 8 to 14, speaking about the wicked, they scoff, they speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, not just people, they're mocking God, blaspheming him, And their tongue struts through the earth. Isn't that a great phrase? We call them a big mouth. 
Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? God doesn't know anything. Maybe there's no God at all. You religious people, so careful. Look at us. We don't worry about it. Behold, these are the wicked. Look at these words. Always at ease. They, they increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean. What's the point? Wash my hands in innocence. For, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Now, there's a couple of things here. Note the, the big sweeping statements, untrue statements in 12 and 13. See this? The wicked, they're always at ease. And I'm just asking you, is that true of anybody on planet Earth? That they never, ever, ever have anything but ease. Is that true? Why is, why is he doing this? Why is he talking like this? Well, he's angry, right? He's upset. In vain I've kept my heart clean. This, this, this is... You know, there are other psalms. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look at this psalm. What's the point? There's no good reason. In vain, I've dedicated my life to the Lord. That's what happens when you, you take your brain... You apply it to a problem, but your brain can't find the answer to the problem. And what that does is, all of a sudden, there's a bit of a flame of doubt, confusion, impatience, anger. And the the ball starts rolling in a bad direction, even in godly people. Why? Well, because your mind is not going to figure this out. And then we start to see a change, okay? Okay. You have to jump down a bit. 73, 17. Same psalmist, same problem. Till I went into the sanctuary of God. And I just want to say, and I'm preaching to the choir, you know, I mean, it's summer and look, you're, you're here, faithful. And I know everybody gets holidays and I'm going to too, so that's not the issue. I'm simply saying as a broad principle, There are things in your life that are never going to be made right if you're not with God's people in his house. I don't care how much you read the Bible. I don't care if you memorize it. I don't care if you spend 19 hours a day in prayer, personal prayer. There are things in your life that will never be right unless you're regularly in God's house with God's people. And the church needs to hear that today. Because the myth is out there. It's out there, folks, that you can have this wonderful relationship with Jesus, sitting in Starbucks with a couple of Christian friends on Sunday, and call that your little church. And you don't need to do this anymore. It's the bride of Christ. Till I went into the sanctuary, 
And then I discerned, isn't that strange, eh? I discerned their end. Think about that, just hold that thought in your mind. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. Now, there's a world of difference, isn't there, between that? And they are always at ease. They don't have a problem in the world. And look, look, at, look at the change in his attitude. Well, they're in slippery places. You, hope you don't have a theological problem with this, that's God, make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, got to change slides, sorry. I was brutish. I was brutish. When? Well, those times when I was saying, you don't care, you don't know, these people don't have any problems, it's all in vain that I'm following you. I was, I was talking like a, an animal, he says. Ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now, see this word? Nevertheless. Nevertheless means, I still don't know why this is the way it is. Nevertheless, that's when we use that word, isn't it? I don't have the answer to my problem. God never does tell the psalmist why the wicked are prospering. He doesn't get an explanation. He's not supposed to have an explanation. He's supposed to trust God. And so he's coming to see it. Nevertheless, I don't have the answer. Nevertheless, I've, I've changed my course. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you receive me to glory. Now, I wish this was on one slide. I can't do this very well. See this? I said here, keep this in mind. I discern their end. Then I discern their end. Their end, the wicked. Look at here. Now he's talking about the righteous. Afterward. What's he doing? Now he's, taking, now he's taking a long view of both the wicked and the righteous. You can't, just, you can't just look at bank accounts. That's what he's saying. You can't just look at cars driven, homes lived in. You can't look at that. If you want to solve this problem, it takes trust. Focus your mind on what you know. What I know is their end and my end. Which, which would you choose? Do you see what he's doing? He's suspending judgment. He doesn't have the answer to his problem, but he's still using his reason, but trust. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Their end, that's destruction. Like a phantom swept away. Whom have I in heaven but you? This isn't something that's true of very many of us, but it's something we can at least aim at. There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. I'm not there yet. But I pray that a lot. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. 
and my portion, see again, forever. The point of interest here is that the psalmist never does get the specific answer to the question he was nagging God about just a few verses earlier. He was complaining. He was actually accusing. The issue of why the wicked prosper many times and the righteous suffer, it's an age-old question that never does get specifically answered in that psalm. But the psalmist does end up satisfied in his heart. And he does this with the help of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't see all the truth until he goes into the sanctuary of God, 17. He gets a big picture. They are destroyed in a moment, swept away by terrors, 19. Afterwards, you will receive me into glory. He does it because he focuses attention on what he already knows to be true of God, even if he can't see why God is doing what he's doing right now. For me, 28, it's good to be near to God. You're my refuge. I don't have an answer to this question, but I am, put it in Vegas terms, I'm putting all my money on God. I'm betting on God. You're my portion. This is exactly what I said at the beginning of this point about suspending judgment without suspending thought. He isn't using his reason now just to get an answer to a question. He doesn't know the answer to that question. Perhaps he won't know in his entire lifetime the answer to that question, but he's still using his head. He's using the peephole of his limited reasoning abilities to recall to his mind what he knows to be true about God. So it's not irrational to suspend judgment in this difficult issue because he does know for sure that God is still good and trustworthy even though he doesn't know what God is doing right at that minute. In other words, while the psalmist doesn't know what God is doing, he knows God knows what he's doing. The next point follows logically. Point number four. This just makes sense. The more you know about God's character, the more you will be able to trust him in confusing situations. The more you know about God's character, the more you will be able to trust him in confusing situations. Everyone in this room needs to go to the resource room and buy the knowledge of the holy. If you have $50 in your wallet or $20, more than you need to go out for lunch, you need to buy the knowledge of the holy. It's a life-changing book. We don't have enough for everybody, so I'm just kidding. Don't all go. The more you know about God's character, the more you will be able to trust him in confusing situations. There's this... Deadly myth, a deadly myth that has a wide following in many contemporary churches. And it has gradually filtered down from many merchandisers of popularized Christian materials. And the myth is this, that 
theological, doctrinal teaching isn't going to help people in this modern age. People need to hear contemporary, non-religious talks if they're going to get anything beneficial out of church. I don't think I have to tell you how much I reject that. Here's the problem with it. What you know about life is not going to help you live life well. It's what you know about God that's going to help you live life well. And there's a world of difference between churches in one camp and churches in the other camp. Zippy little talks on economics and how to have a better sex life and how to deal with, uh, you know, better personal relationships. Whatever value they have, they will not have the weight, the, 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 the gravity to pull you through difficult situations like knowing about the character of God. This is especially true in situations when life doesn't make sense. Os Guinness puts it this way. More specifically, the poorer our understanding of God is at the beginning of our coming to faith, the more we will need to understand everything after coming to faith. If we do not know why we trust God at the beginning then we will always need to know everything God is doing after that in order to trust him. And you're never going to know everything that God is doing. That's a very good way of saying the same thing I just said. If your doctrinal knowledge of God and his character is thin to start with, or goes unfed for week and after week of not going to church, then then you had better hope no trying or confusing situations come up because you will have nothing with which to process them. When life is present, sorry, when life is pleasant, sound doctrine seems like a waste of time. But when life is hard, sound doctrine is the only thing that will hold you up. Here's why all of this knowledge of God is so important. Fifth point, we're almost done. No, really, we're, we're not far off. When times are difficult, the appearance of God changes to our troubled perspective. When times are difficult, the appearance of God, not the character of God, I'm talking about how he seems to us. When times are difficult, the appearance of God changes to our troubled perspective. I think you get some idea of this from the teaching of Jesus. You know this story. It's in Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Neither feared God nor respected man. That's this judge. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, 
Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that, isn't this lovely, she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And you just read that and you think, what a stinker. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Pay attention to that unrighteous judge, Jesus says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night, who delay long over them? Now you read that and you've got to figure out what's going on in that strange parable. Jesus certainly was not telling us that God is like an unjust judge up in the sky who neither fears God nor respects man. He makes that clear at the end of the parable. Right there. He makes that clear. But he is, I think, telling us that there are certain situations like the one Jesus was addressing. You're praying and nothing is happening. And it's urgent. And you want an answer that you're not seeing. And he says there are situations like that that make God seem like that unjust judge to us. Circumstances don't change God. But they can change the way we perceive God. And if you can't suspend judgment when you don't know what God is doing, you are likely to come up with this false conclusion that Jesus is, he's like that unjust judge. We're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to these unjust pictures of God forming in our mind unless we know, unless we know enough about God already to very reasonably rule out false conclusions. And when the chips are down, it's not going to be some peppy talk or some counsel on how to cope with stress or a bit more information on how to get ahead financially. None of that is going to keep your life glued together. It's what you know about God that counts. It's the most practical subject in the whole world. Do you know why you trust in God? Last point. I didn't say that about the last point five, did I? I said we're almost done. This is the last point. Do you know why you trust God? And if you say, yes, Pastor Don, I know why I trust God. He's just so good to me and he blesses my life. And I love being in his presence and that's why I trust God. That's a bad answer. I'll tell you why. It's not that it's untrue. But there are going to come, not may come, there are going to come seasons in your life when none of that feels true. Okay? And if that's why, if that's why you trust God, you're going to fall flat on your face. What God is doing may be a mystery. What he has already done for us in Christ is not. This is the safest, 
surest footing for solid trust and faith. Last passage I want to look at. Romans 8, 32 to 39. And then we're going to pick one verse out of it. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's you, that's me. It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Well, lots of people. Your own conscience, right? person sitting three rows back who might not like you, gossip about you, point out your faults, church can condemn, conscience can condemn, Satan can sure condemn. He's an expert at it. He's got a degree in condemnation. That's what he does. But Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, quoting Isaiah, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep. To be slaughtered. No, in all these things, all right? So those things can come to very good people. Persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Those things can happen. But in, but in all those things, we are still more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the tragedy is that verses 33 to 39 so frequently get read and severed from verse 32, which 32 is the reason 33 to 39 are true. 32 says, that's the one I want to show you. He who did not, this is past tense, Spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then, how? This is applying. This is the logic. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul looks backward. You want something to anchor your faith to? Don't look at your pleasant circumstances or your good health or your good looks. Trust me. Why did you laugh when I said, trust me and good looks? You can lose it all. I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm just saying what you already know. Life, life can get ugly in a week. Right? Just what doctors report. What financial loss. What accident for one of your children. In a week. In a week. Life gets black. What? 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 What do you put up against that? Paul says, look at what... Here's something that, here's something that your circumstances can't change. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. There's where you anchor your faith. 
It is inconceivable. Whether I understand what he's doing or not, here's, I process, I think, I reason, it is inconceivable that he is going to give up on me now. The, the large investment has already been made. Anything that he does for me from here on in is insignificant compared to what he has done. If he's done this, Paul says, you can trust him with everything else no matter where your life takes you. We don't sing it anymore. I just... The hymn we sang this morning is one of two favorite hymns of mine. The other one that I really like... My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I can't understand why a lot of things are happening. It's okay. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough. If he never did anything else, it is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. That's where you anchor your faith. That's where you anchor your faith. Praise God for all the wonderful things he has done for you since. But that can fade. That can fade like a memory. This is unchanging. And it will take you all the way to glory. Everyone said. Let's pray.